I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. The words mutiny and cowardice are some of the most vile recriminations one could make against a ship and its crew. For years, these words were veiled behind the story of HMCS Uganda, Canada's only naval vessel to fight against the Japanese. Yet, The story of Uganda is one of the most unique tales told in the history of Canada's military and speaks to a strange time at the end of the Second World War when a Canadian government prioritized domestic political interest over those of the ongoing military conflict and in turn put the sailors of Uganda in a damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation. Because of this rather strange new policy implemented by Mackenzie King's government, sailors aboard Uganda were given an unheard-of choice in June of 1945, one that would cast a controversial shadow over the ship, its crew, and its role in the Second World War. This is Season 8, Episode 17, HMCS Uganda, the ship that voted to leave the war. Today's book recommendation is titled Mutiny, the Odyssey of HMCS Uganda, and this is by author James W. Essex. It was published in 2000 by Highway Bookshop. HMCS Uganda was a Fiji-class light cruiser launched in 1941 as part of the British Royal Naval Fleet. At that time, it was christened, of course, HMS Uganda. The ship was 169 meters long and carried quite the firepower. It was armed with nine 6-inch guns, eight 4-inch guns, and many smaller guns plus torpedoes. It carried a crew of 907 officers and men. Uganda began its service in March 1943, where it started out as escort protection for convoys and ships carrying VIP passengers. For instance, it once made up part of an escort for the ocean liner RMS Queen Mary, 
which was carrying none other than Winston Churchill to the United States. The ship then spent time in the Mediterranean on escort duty for convoys supplying Allied troops in North Africa. The vessel was part of the bombardment fleet for Operation Husky, which was the invasion of Sicily in July 1943, and then once again was part of the bombardment fleet supporting Operation Avalanche, the invasion of mainland Italy in September 1943. That month, in fact, the Uganda took a direct hit from a German bomb, which passed through seven decks and went straight through the ship's bottom, exploding underwater beneath its keel. Sixteen sailors were killed. HMS Uganda then traveled to Charleston, South Carolina, where it underwent significant repairs. While in Charleston, the Canadian government successfully negotiated with Great Britain for the transfer of HMS Uganda to the Royal Canadian Navy, and this was completed in October of 1944, henceforth the vessel now being HMCS Uganda, His Majesty's Canadian ship. Its British crew thus departed, and in its place was an all-Canadian crew from every province in Canada as well as from, at the time, the British colony of Newfoundland. Its captain was Rollo Mainguy. Mainguy was born in Victoria, British Columbia, and in the first years of the war had commanded HMCS Assiniboine and HMCS Ottawa. By 1942, he was appointed acting commodore of Royal Canadian Naval Destroyers in Newfoundland and then even carried out a stint in Ottawa as chief of naval personnel before finding himself in command of Uganda. Under Maine Guy's command, Uganda was ordered to join the British Pacific Fleet operating near the Sakashima Islands, and this was an archipelago within the Ryukyu Island chain, which also included the island of Okinawa. The vessel left Halifax in October 1944, sailing for its new assignment. Following her journey to the Pacific gives us a sense of the difficulties in moving ships from the Atlantic Theater to the Pacific. Her trip took her to the United Kingdom first, then down to Gibraltar, then over to Egypt then through the Suez Canal, then to Ceylon, followed by a stop at the main fleet base at Fremantle in Australia, where it finally joined the British Pacific Fleet in February 1945 near Sydney. HMCS Uganda was assigned to Task Force 57, which was ordered to attack Formosa Island. Thus, by mid-April 1945, Uganda was carrying out attacks against airfields and installations in northern Formosa. While Uganda was busy fighting the Japanese, the Canadian government announced a policy that would forever shape Uganda's time in the Pacific. On the 4th of April, Prime Minister Mackenzie King announced a volunteers-only policy in regards to Canada's fight in the Pacific. Effectively, Canada would remain in the fight against the Japanese, but would only send soldiers and sailors who volunteered. No one would be sent against their will. Now, why did Mackenzie King's government choose to do this? Well, The reasons are complex. Mackenzie King was looking towards the post-war future. 
He wanted a country that was unified, not split apart due to his government's decision to continue to enforce conscription, a decision that had come in late 1944. But also, Mackenzie King and the Liberal Party had an election coming up, one he certainly sought to win. In his mind, forcing soldiers and sailors to serve in the Pacific, now that Nazi Germany was almost totally defeated, could hurt his party's support amongst the rank and file. In fact, Mackenzie King wrote in his diary, and I quote, I took strongly the position that to create a conscription issue over Japan before a general election would be just suicidal and absolutely wrong. Yet King's position was certainly at odds with naval projections for Canada's fleet in the Pacific. The Royal Canadian Navy's plans, which were stated in May of 45, for its Pacific fleet was 63 vessels needing approximately 13,400 crew. Many within the Royal Canadian Navy saw this volunteer-only policy as seriously undermining its ability to put this fleet into service. Now, while news of this policy came out, Uganda was fighting. The ship earned battle honors for Operation Iceberg, the invasion of Okinawa, and Operation Inmate, where the vessel was the flagship for Rear Admiral Eric Brind during attacks against what is now called Micronesia. Because of the policy announcement from Mackenzie King's government, the ship's company was required to vote on whether or not they would volunteer to continue to serve in the Pacific. They did this on the 2nd of June, 1945, while also voting on the Canadian general election. Now, while 344 members of the ship's crew voted to remain, 556 voted not to volunteer. This thus made the ship's operational capabilities non-existent. On top of this, it would have been a logistical nightmare to send home 556 sailors and have them replaced with recruits who could function effectively in the battle space. Thus, in an incredible moment in Canadian military history, the Canadian Admiralty decided that HMCS Uganda was going to go home. It's interesting to note that even this return to Canada, specifically Esquimalt on Vancouver Island, was still going to take some logistic juggling, and thus Uganda remained on active duty until late July 1944, when, on the 27th of July, she set sail for Canada's west coast. Little did they know that the war would end in just over a month. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Folks, I know that sometimes advertisements can get in the way of a good story. And here at CCH, we never want a good story's momentum broken up. But we really rely on advertisement for the financial support needed to continue to make this show. That being said, there is a way to access CCH episodes advertisement free. If you go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search CCH, you can access all our episodes ad-free by just donating $1 or 2 bucks to the podcast. It's easy, safe, and a great way to get this content without the ads. Patreon even has an app, so you can simply use the app on your phone like you would be using any of your podcast apps and have every new Curious Canadian History episode right there at your fingertips. Check out patreon.com slash Curious Canadian History today and join the club. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. So the question is, why did so many sailors choose to go home? And maybe some of you out there might think it's obvious, but let's explore these reasons. Because there are many, and some are certainly more powerful than others. Firstly, only about one-third of the ship's crew had previous experience on a cruiser. Many of the others had served on smaller vessels in the Atlantic. Thus, for many sailors on the ship, they were adjusting to a wholly new routine on a very new type of ship. Now, part of that new routine was defending against Japanese kamikaze attacks, which had begun in October of 1944 during the Battle of Leyte Gulf. These desperate suicide attacks inflicted significant psychological damage on many sailors, as it was a form of combat entirely alien to those sailors, not just on Uganda, but across the Allied Pacific Fleet. For some, adjusting to life on a cruiser, coupled with dealing with kamikaze attacks, was enough to make them choose to go home when given the choice. But that wasn't all there was. One of the major issues on board was the lack of good food. In fact, one could argue food at sea is the key element in maintaining morale, and HMCS Uganda was not fulfilling its obligation in feeding its crew in a way to maintain that morale. In fact, this was a larger problem that existed throughout the Royal Navy, which was responsible for the food for Uganda. Logistic lines were long. They were difficult to maintain. And the Royal Navy had been so focused on the war in the Atlantic that often its Pacific fleet was second in line in receiving food as well as things like spare parts. Sailors spoke of the lack of fresh vegetables, fresh fruit, fresh meat, while being inundated with plenty of dehydrated food that lacked all taste. To add to the detrimental effect that poor food had on the sailors, living conditions aboard the vessel were extremely difficult. In fact, even by the standards of the day, Uganda was a poor place to live and work. It sailed to the Pacific without onboard exhaust fans for air circulation. One can imagine how the heat and humidity would affect the morale when air wasn't being circulated properly. As well, 
the vessel sailed without a water distillation plant that could support the crew. Now, as Stoker Don Sale put it, and I quote, the conditions on the Uganda were horrible. It was 115 degrees Fahrenheit in the boiler room. We didn't have enough water to drink, and the ship was infested with rats and cockroaches. Everybody had athlete's foot, and it drove us mad. We ripped off as much of our shoes as we could just to let some air in. So you have bad food, bad air, and limited fresh water. But let's not also forget the fact that many of these sailors had been at sea for years, away from loved ones, away from family, away from friends. By being asked if they would volunteer to continue to serve, many of them simply had to choose between continued service or returning to their families and homes. It's no surprise that so many, after so many years of service, chose to return to Canada. As one sailor pointed out, and I quote, a lot of guys were married. They'd been away from home for four or five years. Everybody already felt like they'd been through hell, and all of a sudden you're given a chance to get out? Well, holy geez, life's got to be better than this. Now, not to mention the fact the entire volunteer-only policy suddenly made it seem like the Canadian government was not that interested in the war in the Pacific. Perhaps the British and Americans were well off with their own ships. They certainly weren't giving their personnel any options to go home. The fact that Mackenzie King's government did just that convinced many Canadian sailors that Canada simply did not want to remain in the fight in the first place. Simply put, why would you want to fight and die for a country that didn't seem that committed to the war anymore? Even Commander Main Guy noted how the policy really tipped the balance in favor of not volunteering. In his mind, the whole announcement was, and I quote, pretty stupid. And as he put it, the sailor's attitude was, and I quote, well, if we're not wanted, of course, we don't want to fight the Japs if it's not necessary. As able seaman Andrew Lawson put it, we volunteered once to get here. I was prepared to stay there. But if they were going through this nonsense of volunteering, I wasn't going to volunteer again. They could send me to China, Timbuktu, if they wanted. In fact, Commander Mangai wrote decades later that, and I quote, the permanent force was insulted because they'd spent all their lives getting ready for a war. And then, when in the middle of the war, we were asked whether we wanted to go and finish it. Now, Commander Mangai did not help the situation either. He gave a big speech prior to the vote, which came across as very ill-tempered. And for some sailors who were sitting on the fence, he pushed them into the camp that chose no to staying on. As Lieutenant Ernest Chadwick wrote, that was a bad thing. That finished it. Thus, with all reasons considered, it's actually a shock that so many sailors voted to stay on. Nonetheless, HMCS Uganda could not continue to function effectively with so many not volunteering to stay in the Pacific. In an ironic twist of fate on its way back to Esquimalt, the vessel actually suffered a boiler collapse, which would have taken it out of combat anyways. 
It arrived at Vancouver Island on the 10th of August, 1945. Three weeks later, the war ended. Now, some interesting side notes. Uganda's aircraft recognition officer was John Robarts, who went on to become Premier of Ontario. HMCS Uganda went on to actually be rechristened HMCS Quebec and served in the Korean War. The vessel was finally decommissioned in 1956. Sadly, for years after the war, the story of Uganda tended to be one veiled with hints of cowardice and mutiny. Further, the Royal Canadian Navy suffered a severe blow of prestige when it had no ship in the Pacific when the war ended. The sailors of HMCS Uganda were neither cowards nor mutinous. They were simply faced with an incredible choice, one that most soldiers and sailors are never given, an option to go home, an option to stop risking their lives, an option to see their families and loved ones. Were the government to have simply continued on as they had been, these sailors would have continued to serve admirably, and HMCS Uganda would possibly have still been in the Pacific when the war came to an end. As it stood, she was the only Canadian ship to fight against the Japanese in the Second World War, and she was also the only ship to vote itself out of that war. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. Friends.